Love that song. High energy. Takes a lot of breath out of you. If I have to stop about halfway through and take a hit on my inhaler, I apologize. What a service. I absolutely love mornings like this. Mornings where you can hear from Jesse and a poem he wrote, get led by Nathan, hear a prayer from Justin, communion from David. This has been a great day. Great day. Sometimes as an associate minister who works with teens, I, I get to see stuff that you guys don't. I get to see development, challenging, changing, growing, and evolving. And I get to see it up close and personal. I mean, think back to you, when you were that age, 15, 16. How much did you change over those three or four years? A lot? They are too. And I'll tell you, the one person in that classroom every Sunday morning who's challenged and changed more than any one of them is me. We are blessed to have a remarkable and incredible group of young people here. If you don't know them, get to know them. Because they will challenge and change you too. God has been with us through a very difficult year. There was a portion of our year where we had four kids come into Bible class. Just because COVID and concerns and traveling and all of that. There was a lot of concern. Is our youth group going to survive? Are we going to pull through? And God, like in all things, has delivered with a fantastic group of kids who are making all of us better every day. So to all of you, thank you. All of you running the booth are teenagers, so thank you and thank you and all the other thanks that need to go around. But that's not the point of the sermon. 1928, November 20th, in Paris Opera Hall, Maurice Ravel was about to release his new symphonic piece entitled Bolero. And everyone had been rumor milling about it. Everyone was talking about it. It was this up-and-coming composer who was going to put what everyone thought would be the apex out. Newspaper articles were run day after day after day, hyping this piece, Bolero. Hyping what it was going to do to the music world. People began to show up six hours before the event began to hopefully catch a piece of the warm-up, to hear the band practice just something so they get a, a taste of what it was going to be. Then it began, the concert. Maurice's Bolero. Silence. Filled. Everyone strained to hear anything, the first note. And what met their eardrums was... over and over from a single snare, quiet, in the background. For like a minute and a half, that was the only sound in the concert hall. And then you hear a gentle flute come in and begin to play this really stunning and beautiful melody. I'm not going to sing it for you. Look it up, it's really good. And it began to play this gentle melody, but you know what? No one could get their ears off of that snare. Penetrating, continual. And throughout the song, every different instrument would try to say, play the same melody louder and louder and louder. They would do it over and over on top of each other, anything to get the listener to hear the melody. But all the listener can hear is this gentle, singular snare in the background. Over and over and over and over 
again, 15 minutes of different instruments trying to play this melody to draw your attention away. People in the audience later were reported not being able to really even remember what the melody sounded like for the first time listening through. They would try to sing it back, and they'd get part of it right, but they couldn't remember all of it. The melody was only 10 measures, repeated over and over again for 15 minutes. At the conclusion of Bolero, the piece, Ravel cut out the snare. The whole audience woke up, because for the first time in the whole song, you didn't hear the consistent in the background. And then there was a cacophony of sounds. A melody playing, cymbals banging, gongs being hit, everything is going crazy. Then it ends abruptly. No warning, no thought. The concert hall was silent. Then you hear... Then everyone starts applauding. Everyone except for a woman in the fourth row who stood up, tears in her eyes, pointing at Ravel, screaming in French, the madman, the madman. And everyone in the concert hall do, does what you'd expect, right? Everyone turns on her. Be quiet. Sit down. What are you doing? Except for, for Ravel himself, who stands up and looks at her and says, this lady, she understands. She understands. There's more to the story of Bolero, and I wish I had time to tell it to you today. Tomorrow, Jesse and I are going to be dropping a podcast where we're going to break down Bolero and how it relates to what we're talking about in our sermon a little bit more. Uh, so I hope you're looking out for that. It'll be a lot of fun. Uh, plus, if you're into, like, creepy stories, you should tune in. It gets pretty wacky from here. The madness of Bolero became a staple of this piece. In fact, I played it in high school. That's how I was first exposed to it. And everyone on stage... Like, you sat down, like, for an orchestra piece, then the lights went off, and before the lights came back on to play the piece, everyone would choose a different seat. Sometimes they would turn their chairs all together, facing in the wrong direction. And everybody that was playing one of the melodies to the solos had to stand up, wasn't allowed to sit, and you just had to wander the stage the whole time. All of us were given red masks. Madness, representing the insanity of the piece. The beauty of the melody completely lost. That's all anyone can remember. This is a really good metaphor. A really good metaphor for a problem that we still struggle with. A problem dating back to the Garden of Eden and a problem that if we don't get right, it'll still plague us today. A problem, mind you, that I have not yet met a Christian who doesn't struggle with or has struggled with. It's an age-old dilemma. Temple or Torah. Let's quickly define these words, because we're going to use them a bunch today. When I say temple, I want you to think of a single word. I want you to think of the word grace. I say temple, you think grace. I say temple, you think grace. This would be the part of the teen class where I'd say, I say temple, you say. There it is. We got it. The temple is not just a building, it's an idea. There was a building called the temple, but the idea of temple is very simple. God living with us. We don't deserve it, we didn't warrant it, but God chose to live with us. In the Garden of Eden, the original temple was Eden. Then there was a tent that served as the temple. Then there was a building that served as a temple. And then the hearts of the, the exiles existed as the temple. 
And then there was another building also serving as the temple. Jesus came in the flesh. He was a temple. And now the Holy Spirit is templing in us. Temple, 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 all the way through. God living with us. Simple, right? The temple representing grace. If this was a melody, a symphony, this would be the melody of Bolero. A beautiful tune. Beautifully orchestrated. That can warm your heart. Then we have Torah. Torah. When I say Torah, I want you to think works. Torah, works, Torah. There it is. And the Torah literally just means the law, the words. And again, there is a Mosaic law found in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Exodus. You get pieces of it all over there. But the idea of Torah is very simple. It's just a series of laws that the people of God follow. And there has been Torah for as long as there has been people of God, right? There has been a Torah that was like in the Garden of Eden, the commands given to Adam and Eve, throughout the Mosaic wanderings into the law, and even into Jesus' time in our day. We have laws that we follow. The Torah. I want you to think of this as the snare. Of Bolero. Given in balance, both are good and both are necessary. The melody that, that provides the joy to the song, the snare that provides the tempo. But the problem is, when it gets out of whack, the symphony devolves into the madness of Bolero. And in our faith, we have to be careful because this is the tendency for us to get out of rhythm. The rhythm of Torah and tempo. As an aside, Casey Burkhardt grabbed me right before service. He goes, he goes, I knew you were going to preach this Sunday. And I said, why? And he goes, because I read the bulletin article, and I knew that couldn't be Jeff. I don't know if take that as a compliment or insult. The entire time I'm up here preaching, that's what I've been thinking about. I'm going to take it as a compliment. Probably an insult. When I was in college learning theology, I was taught this four rhyming phrase thing that helped guide me to understand the history of the Bible. And it went like this. The fall, the law, the fail, and the bail, because there is nothing that theologians like more than rhyming. The concept is simple. In the beginning, there was perfection, Adam and Eve. Then we fell. We chose sin. God gave us a command. We didn't do command. We lost salvation. Then God gave us a law in hopes that if we followed the law, we would find our salvation, the Mosaic law. But guess what? It was too hard. 523 laws are a lot to remember and even more to try to do perfectly. And so they failed. They could not do the law. And because of that, they had to be bailed out by Christ, who came in, perfectly followed the law, and brought us salvation once and for all. And that's a fine story. But as I've studied the Bible more, this isn't the story I see. To me, this is missing one of the key ingredients, one of the key parts because in this, it almost sounds like there has been multiple attempts at Torah, at law to provide salvation. And at every single juncture, the law failed to save us, and it was our fault because we couldn't do it right. But then I read the Bible, and there seems to be something else, temple, grace. It is actually what saves us. So what if the story is different? What if the Bible is trying to teach us something radical, radically new? What if the Bible is trying to give us the answer of how to deal with temple and Torah? Find the balance that makes that beautiful symphony of salvation. Well, 
That's today's objective. Let's start here. Throughout the entire Bible, I want to be very clear on something. Temple is the thing that saves. Temple is the thing that saves. Temple, and at this point, every time I say temple, you should think grace. Temple, grace, is what is for salvation. It always has been the case. We'll talk about that in a moment. Torah, on the other hand, the law, is never designed to save you. In fact, it never was designed to save you, as we'll talk about in just a moment. It was all about identity. If you want to be a child of God, if you want to be in the kingdom of Israel, if you want to look like a chosen one, if you want to be a Jew, here are the laws you have to follow to consecrate yourself, to set yourself apart from the world. So that when people look at you, they go, oh, that's a child of God. And that has always been the purpose of Torah. From the Garden of Eden on, it's never been any different. Temple for salvation. Torah for identity. Grace for salvation. Works for identity. Let's find an example so we can give some lights to this. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Generally speaking, if you want to understand a story, you go to the start. The first temple imagery we get is actually the Garden of Eden itself. God created the whole world, right? Plants, trees, flowers, put them all over the place. And then God looked out and said, okay, that's done. Now it's my turn to build a sanctuary. So he goes and finds the plants and brings them to a garden, his favorite trees. I don't know how this would have worked. I would imagine he's just like, that was the best daisy I have ever made in my life. And so he grabs that and he brings it to the Garden of Eden. That right there, strongest oak tree in the world, that one's going in the garden. Um, I'm pretty sure mosquitoes not in the garden. Uh, but he takes all of the favorite things of creation and brings them to this central garden. And then he looks around and says, almost done. Now it's time for the most important part. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, it says that the Lord planted the, this garden, planted this orchard, and then went out and found Adam. And he brought Adam to the garden. Did Adam do anything to warrant going to the garden? Did it say that Adam was invited to the garden because of the righteousness of his ideals? No. Was he invited to the garden because he nailed it? No. Was he invited to the garden because of any action or work? No. He was invited to the garden simply because God looked and said, I want him there. Grace brought him there to the temple. And he had life. Life eternal. But then we see the first law, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 30. We see a variety of laws. I didn't have enough space on the PowerPoint to put that up there. So uh, you'll just have to trust me on it or go back and look for yourself. There were a variety of commands that God gave to Adam and Eve. To have dominion over, to rule, to care for the earth, to be fruitful and multiply. And then there was a fifth in, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was it. Five laws. Five laws. The first Torah. But I want you to notice something. All of these five laws are about being an image bearer of God. You want to be an image bearer of God, here's what you got to do. You got to take care of the earth. You want to be an image bearer of God, it's, that's fine. You have to have dominion. You want to be an image bearer of God, so on and so forth. You get the picture. It's all about identity of Adam and Eve. Even the consequence for if you break the Torah, Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, is physical death. Physical death. Temple, salvation, grace was the spiritual sustenance of Adam and Eve. The Torah was all about identity. With the consequence being physical death. I noticed something here as I was studying. 
The Hebrew word here for die is the Hebrew word almost exclusively used for physical death. There is a term, by the way, for spiritual lostness. Also a word for spiritual death, this is an if. God isn't saying here that if you mess up the law, you've lost salvation. What did he say? If you've messed up the law, there's a physical consequence. Let's keep that docked away for just a second. Let's keep going. The first sin, in fact, fascinated, fascinatingly enough, involves this idea of temple and Torah. Grace and works. Trust in God and his relationship or the law. Uh, um, Satan comes to Eve and says, hey, you want this fruit. Pointing at the one fruit that she's not supposed to have. There's only five rules at this point. I feel like they can get this down. But guess what he wanted? What she wanted? That fruit. And in this moment, there was one surefire way that this would have ended. This is a spiritual conflict, mind you. Remind yourself of that. Spiritual conflict here. Spiritual conflict. Satan is trying to condemn the world in sin. Spiritual conflict. What do you do in spiritual conflict? You go back to God. The entire narrative would have been different had Satan said, hey, you want this? And she went, I'm going to go back over here and be with God for a while. God's strength was enough to prevail over the temptation of sin. You know what wasn't strong enough? Her own righteousness. Her own faith. She even tries to quote the scripture of what God said back. She's relying on Torah. Not only is she relying on the words of God or the works, what she's relying on is her interpretation of it. To make sure she got it right. She trusts in her own ability to overcome Satan in this moment. She doesn't need God. She's got the Torah. Her own righteousness. Right? That'll be enough. The moment she replaced what was most important in temple with the works of the Torah, she entered into Bolero's madness. Starting first with a instead of the melody. From here on, she would struggle with that. Allowing that to be the only thing she could hear, often overlooking the beauty of the melody of grace and salvation. This never changed, by the way. I want to let it be known because the Jews struggled with this forever. Uh, throughout their entire history, they struggled with this, and it never got any easier for them. They continually replaced temple, the saving grace of God's relationship, with their obedience to the law, believing that if they just got it all right, they'd be saved. And God consistently had to remind them no. Perhaps most jarringly is John, uh, John chapter 5, verse 39. When Jews in Jesus' day approached him, and Jesus said to him, you study the scriptures thoroughly, because you think in them, in the Torah, in the works, in the rightness of your belief, in your own intellect, you'll possess eternal life. But it's the same scriptures that point to me, Jesus said. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Where is life? Not in the Torah, but in the temple. It's simple. We go to God for life, to the law for identity. It sounds so easy when I say it like that. Go to the temple for salvation, to the Torah for identity. But it's not easy. And it's not easy because grace is so terribly difficult. I have the worst rhythm of all time. For those of you who know anything about musical theory, and some of you do, 
and you've ever seen me try to lead? Can't do it. Never been gifted at it. So I just kind of do this thing. The Bishop Darby Hyper. Keeps it moving. Don't have to worry about, you know, whatever this beat is. But I could learn Bolero's stair part. Basically nailed it as much as I've been doing it up here. I can do that. I can believe that I can do that. I can tell myself, oh, it's so easy. Just do this, and it'll be fine. The problem is, about halfway through the piece, when I start getting off rhythm, the whole piece is going to fall apart because I'm not good enough to do that. And I'm trying to make the snare something it never was supposed to be in the piece. The background, not the foreground. We struggle with the idea of Torah because we believe, we convince ourselves that if I just do it enough, if I do it well enough, if I understand enough, if I learn more, if I apply the law better, then I'll be saved and I can be sure of it. As Dad talked about last week, that's a broken paradigm. It won't work because we're overlooking what actually does save us. That is the temple. This idea of Torah is a covenant law, a promise if conditions are met and a consequence if they're not. This is how all covenantal law worked in the ancient world. You get a promise, you get conditions, and a consequence. You don't do it. So in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 1, we see God says, here is the covenant law. He's saying this is the covenant law, the Torah, the law of Moses, all 523 laws of it. Then he offers us a promise of it. You probably can't read it up here. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 9 through 11. I want you to listen closely to this. The Lord will designate you as his holy people, just as he promised. If you keep his commandments and obey them, all people of the earth will see that you belong to the Lord, and they will respect you. The Lord will greatly multiply your children, the offspring of your livestock, and the produce of your soil, and the land that he promised your ancestors he would give. Let me ask, where in that does it say that if we do it all right, then we'll be forgiven of sin? Or we'll find salvation? The promise of the law was identity, not salvation. This actually ties back to the original covenantal promise with Abraham. Abraham is childless. For those of you who don't know the story, here's the quick recap. Abraham is childless. Sarah's old. They're not going to be able to have kids. God says, I'm going to make a nation through you. He keeps saying it over and over. Finally, Abraham's starting to lose faith. And so, what he decides to do is God re-ups the covenant, offering a covenantal law, not just a promise, but this time a covenantal law. There is conditions that Abraham has to meet. There is a promise given to Abraham and a consequence. So he makes a full covenant law with him in Genesis chapter 17, and it's the exact same thing. It says the exact same thing as the law given to Moses. Again, notice something interesting here all about identity, how the world will perceive you to be a child of God, to be a part of Abraham's family. This is what the law was designed to do, not salvation. I know I'm hammering this home, but I promise in just a second, this is really important. The purpose of the law is to mark the people of Israel as part of Abraham's family, not about salvation. Again, reiterating just once more for the people in the back, it is important that we realize the Torah was never designed to save. It was never designed to save. There wasn't a possibility that if you perfectly executed the Torah, then you, you could figure it out and you could find salvation. If you followed all 523 laws, if you offered every sacrifice at the right time, if you were blameless according to the law, it wouldn't have mattered. 
It wouldn't have mattered because you still couldn't have been saved. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 24, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable. For no one is declared righteous before him by the works of the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But apart from the law, the righteousness of God, although it is attested by the law and the prophets, has been disclosed. Namely, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus. What is he saying here? It's a very wordy thing. Paul has a tendency to do this. Y'all think I'm wordy. Go read Romans again. What he's saying is very simple. According to the law, there is no justification. According to the law, there is no one righteous. According to the law, there is no salvation because the law was never designed to do that. But aside from the law, apart from the law, on another vein altogether is Jesus Christ standing there offering temple. A place for us to dwell with him. I want to be sure that we got this, so I have one more verse written here. Not going to read it for time's sake. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. I lied. This is too beautiful. For all who rely on doing the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not keep on doing everything written in the book of the law. Now it is clear no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous ones will live by perfect obedience and execution of the law. No. We'll live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. But the one who does the works of the law will live by them. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This is deep theology, folks. Just hang with me. Buckle down. We're almost through. Again, all these passages reveal the same thing. You cannot be saved by your perfect execution of the law, nor can you be saved by any law of any time. The Torah from the Garden of Eden, the Torah from the Old Testament, the Torah in the time of Abraham, the Torah now. There is no set of circumstances, laws, or rules that one can follow to find salvation. And no matter how easy it feels to pick up the sticks and hit that snare, it's only going to lead in disarray. Because we cannot do it on our own. This idea is so important. There is beauty in the Torah, beauty in the law. Very important. It revealed identity. It showed that I am a part of God. Not only that, but it aligned us with God. It says, I'm standing and I'm doing the same thing God is. This is the point of the law. It's all about what we do to make sure we show the world I'm with God and also to help God along the way. And it's also Abraham's family to be a part of a bigger kingdom of God. Which, by the way, I find stunning because it's all about unity, right? For in, for in the family of Abraham, Paul writes in Galatians, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. All of us are equal in the kingdom of God, in Abraham's family. That's what we're aspiring to be, and the law helps us get there. But we have to let it be what it's supposed to be, and not what often we make it to be. As an ironic twist, the law actually did have a secret mission from God. It was designed to reveal sin, to show us what's right and wrong, so that it could condemn sin, to say, that's wrong, and then to bring wrath on sin. That's what the law was. But there was a reason for it. Because in Galatians chapter 3, verses 21 through 22, this is one of the coolest moments of God. Because God said, I know you're not going to be able to do the law, and that's okay. Because you're not saved by the law, you're saved by grace. 
I'm going to give you a law that you can aspire towards, that can make you better, that can push you. You'll never be able to perfectly reach it, but that's okay because your salvation is not tied on your ability to execute everything right, to know everything perfectly. In fact, he said that he imprisoned sin into the law. That he took all the evil in the world and he created this law as kind of like, y'all ever seen one of those plants where it has like this giant mouth and there's like sweet stuff and as flies land in it, they like fall into this tube of acid? Y'all ever do that in biology class? No? Okay. I'm getting a lot of crazy looks. Let's try this. Y'all know what a net is? Yeah, that. Let's, that's the idea. That you drop the net in and things get caught into it. And so the Torah was like a giant net in which he caught all sin and wrapped it up into one place. The law absorbed all sin, all sin of all people, both in the law and out of the law. It absorbed it all so that when Christ came in Romans 8, he walked into the law and died to it. He took all the sin that was in the law, put it in himself, and died to the cross. Effectively doing two things. You ready for this? One, obliterating the law by fulfilling it. And two, revealing to us once and for all what grace truly looks like. Because there is no person on planet earth that deserved forgiveness of sins. And yet he freely gave it to us all. Ironically, the Jews trusted the Torah, the rightness of their beliefs, making sure they figured it all out. They were doing it all right. They trusted that for salvation in a system, ironically, designed to catch sin, not bring salvation. And in so doing, they overlooked what was actually most important, choosing an identity in God. And likewise, we do the same today. Let me be real with you for just a moment. Get heavy, then we'll wrap it up. I get so disheartened sometimes when I look at the Christian world right now. How much anger, vitriol, division, and, dis and hate do we have among people? The Torah was designed so that if we perfectly execute the law, or at least try, that we'll love people, care for one another, sacrifice ourselves on behalf of others, be willing to submit our pride, submit our own rightness, submit anything, so that we can temple with peace. That was the point. What's ironic is an entire system, an infrastructure, a Torah designed to bring unity is actually the, the reason we divide. In so doing, we've allowed the Torah to be the snare drum that unravels the peace, demints it, and brings badness to it. If we're going to be the Christians that God wants us to be, then we have got to return to the actual need of the Torah, the purpose of it to follow God's rules and commands, not because we're terrified that if we miss one, we're going to go to hell forever. Not petrified that, oh my goodness, I, I keep falling short, this is hopeless. No, the, the, that's, for Je that's what Jesus died for. That's his thing. Your thing is to look at the Torah and say, I want to be a better person today than I was yesterday, and a better person then tomorrow. I'm going to love people because Christ told me to, and that's what it means to be a child of God, to love and care for others following the, or the rules and ordinances of God, not because we're terrified that if we miss one, it's over. Realizing that the whole point is to bring us together with God and each other in unity. So, any Torah, new or old, is important for our identity, but can't be our security of salvation. I know this seems like I'm only halfway through, I'm almost done, there's only like four seconds. What is temple? Temple is the process of God showing grace and salvation through relationship. Because the saving power of God is always seen in, in relationship. 
It's always seen in temple. It's always seen in grace, being given something we don't deserve. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, literally one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, if not the most beautiful to me. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in our offenses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You are saved. And he raised us up together with him and seated us together with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you are saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. It is not from works, from Torah, so that no man can boast. John chapter 14, verse 6 says clearly that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Not the Torah, not any other substructure. It's grace alone. Even in the Old Testament, we get alluded to this. For I delight in relationship. Love, has said is the Hebrew word there. Not simply in sacrifice. I delight in acknowledging God, not simply the whole burnt offering. God wants us to trust in him for salvation. Full stop. Not trust in God for salvation and our ability to do everything right. Not trust in God for salvation and to ensure that we get every single part of the Bible correct. Not trust in God for salvation and try to make sure that our theology is flawless and we've nailed it all because we will always fall short. It's not about that. Because the Bible is a mystery that I will continue to solve to the day I die and I'll get a lot of it wrong. You will too. There are going to be a lot of times where God says very clearly, love people, and guess what I don't do? Love people. I'm going to keep trying, and I'm going to keep trying to improve. Why? Because I'm, I'm templing with God. I'm, I'm in a relationship with him, and I love him, and I want to, because I want to be his child. Not because of some fear. I'm not driven to good works by fear and desperation. I'm driven to good works out of my deep and meaningful love for God. For in perfect love there is no fear, for love drives out fear. That's what John said. Faith, Christianity is not a faith of the fearful. Christianity is a faith of the loved and the ones who want to love more. Christianity is a faith of grace, salvation. Not because we deserve it, but because he gave it to us freely. Let me ask you, if your walk with Christ was a symphony, would it sound beautiful? Resolved. Or would it be the madness of Bolero? Us chasing after the impossible putting the Torah in a place of salvation, spinning our wheels effortlessly and always in an attempt to be perfect, something we'll never do. Dad last week talked about the practical stuff, which is where he's strong. But he asked me if I would do like a theological study of that idea. So here we are. The whole Bible paints one picture. Never at one time in the history of human discourse Never one time in the history of human thought, not one time in religious history, were we ever designed to save ourselves by actions. Grace was always the, the idea. And grace will be the idea until Jesus comes back and shows us truly how big his grace is. I am saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Not by the works of the law so I can boast. I am not perfect, I'm broken. I'm not strong, I'm weak. And sure, I can quote a whole bunch of scripture. Yeah, and I can put together a sermon of deep theology. But there are people in my life who I've never loved that I should have. There are lies I tell 
pride I wrestle with. Glory be to God that it doesn't stop me from doing so. Glory be to God that I'm with him and him alone. Glory be to God that I stand here today a saved man solely because I've put my love, soul, heart, mind, and strength into Jesus, and I trust in him. That is salvation. You stand secure in faith. Yes, you're standing secure in Jesus. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor principalities, nor things in heaven, nor things on earth can separate me from the love of Jesus Christ. That's true then, that's true now. I stand firm in him, and you do too. Stand secure in the grace God gave you. Let Torah be the works that help the world see who you are, but never let those blind you to your grace. If you were here this morning, and you are someone who's never experienced God's saving grace, or maybe for the first time this morning you're sitting here and you're feeling something, don't let that moment pass. There are elders who stand in the back, and they want to talk to you. I want to talk to you because we want to tell you about the beautiful nature of God. A God who wants to save you. And a God who knows that we'll never get it right. But it doesn't stop him from loving us. If there's any way we can help, let us. Let's stand and let's sing our invitation song.